When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come, and another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. What are we talking about here? But war. War. War follows Antichrist, the second rider. The rider on the wet red horse is the picture of war. And gang, anyone who tells you that the ills of the world and the problems will be solved politically is either deceived or they are deceiving. Because we cannot solve these problems politically. George Bush, I think, is starting to just barely figure this out. The roadmap to peace with Hamas in control of the Palestinian people is just getting worse. Again, we were talking just this afternoon. He's got to play out this card. Our president has to, now he's got to go down this road. He's got to at least keep enough of a political policy out there to keep the oil flowing into the United States, but at the same time making sure that Israel is still our friend. I mean, what a tenuous position. There is not a political solution to what's going on. There isn't one. War. War will happen. I um, shared with several people, uh, you know, the suicide bomb went off in Tel Aviv when Cheryl and I were there. It was two days after we had left Tel Aviv, so we were in good shape. Everything was okay there. It also was in an area that wasn't close to where we were. But another thing that happened, we were sitting in, in Getty. In Getty is the place where David hid in the rocks from Saul who was trying to kill him. And we were sitting there having a Bible study, which was just awesome. But as we sat there overhead, two F-16 Israeli fighters just came jamming by. And as they flew off, they went off toward the West Bank, and we saw them going. It was like, wow. I mean, they were booking. I'm not used to that, because our house is right up here on the, on the hill. And as the fighters come out of the Navy base, they, they, you know, they do their circle, and they lazily kind of go by, and I'm like, you go a little faster. And, they, you know, I want to see some excitement. Those Israeli jets were awesome. It was really exciting. And they went jamming by, and we asked our tour guide, hey, what's going on? He said, I don't know. They're probably just doing maneuvers, although they're headed for the West Bank, so I'm not sure what's up. And we found out that night that they had gone on a mission, and they had gone and bombed two cars in the Palestinian area that were loaded with ammunition and explosives and things to be used against Israel. Pretty cool, huh? <laughs> so we watched that going on, and with Hamas now in control of the Palestinian elections, things are crazy. Listen to me. When Antichrist comes on the world scene, the world will be ripe for deception. The world will be ready for a political peacemaker, the one has never worked. What's going on in Israel? There's this massive cultural difference between the Jewish people and the Arabic or the Palestinian people in Israel right now. A worldview that is completely different. That you can't, the reason why trying to get these people um, at the same table to, to discuss things, the reason why it's so hard is because they don't see the world the same way. How do you talk to someone who believes literally that by blowing myself up and taking you with me, I get to go to heaven? Guaranteed. That's a different worldview that makes no sense to me. But there's more to it. The Jewish people, the reason why, you may wonder, why did they give up the Gaza Strip? And why are they even talking about giving up space in the West Bank? Why don't they just hold what's their own? Because there's one thing that is more important to the Jewish people in Israel than anything else. Do you know what it is? Shalom. Peace. We just want peace. If, if, if it means giving up Gaza, if it means giving them the West Bank, we'll, we'll build our security barrier, they have everything on the other side of it, if it will just mean peace. And the problem is, peace will not come. It's not going to come. 
Only Jesus ultimately is going to bring peace to the land. I said this this morning when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, Psalm 122, what we're praying for is the Jewish people accepting Jesus. Accepting the ultimate peace and the only one who's going to bring peace. But Antichrist coming with his bow, he's not going to bring peace. He's going to bring a false peace treaty, but he's going to violate it himself and it will be the worst kind of violation ever to happen in history. Ariel Sharon, who now lies in comatose, and, and who even knows what's going on there right now, it's a good chance that he will, well, I don't think he'll ever come out of it. And I think the only reason why it's being kept quiet is they're trying to get closer to the Israeli elections in March so that his man, his second in command, Ehud Omer, can sail on into the, the election and, and hold that position. But he started a new, a new party called the Kadima Party. The platform of the Kadima Party is Land for Peace. And it is the most popular party in Israel right now. And had Aaron Sharon stayed you know, able to rule the country or to lead the country, he would have won the election. Why? Because the Jewish people want peace. They desire peace more than anything else, even more than covenant land. Even more than taking control or living in the land that God promised them, they'll even give that up if they can just have shalom. And so along comes Antichrist with the offer of peace and the world will say, at last, someone has a solution. At last, peace in Jerusalem. At last, shalom. We, they can have their Palestinian state. We've got the Jewish state. We have together peace. And it's the great setup. By the way, it's not just the Jews awaiting Messiah to bring peace. They believe Messiah is going to come. Not Jesus, but Mashiach, the Messiah, is going to come and bring peace. They're looking for that peacemaker. Did you know Muslims are too? For in the Quran it talks about a bringer, a messenger of peace who will precede Mohammed. And interestingly, this is how deceptive and subtle Satan is. In the Quran, it says that this messenger will come, this man of peace, and he will bring peace before Muhammad's return for seven years. Seven years. Antichrist comes along and says, peace treaty for seven years. Israel, seven years. I give you seven. Muslims, seven years. And both at that time will be so ready, they'll buy into it and say, wow. The Jews believing Messiah has come. And the Muslims believing the man of peace preceding Muhammad. He's come. Seven years of peace. And both sides, along with the rest of the world, will be completely deceived by Antichrist. This is why students of prophecy, by the way, watch so closely what's happening in Israel and the Middle East. There's a 4,000 year history involved here that's glossed over with lies and deceit, political posturing, and broken covenants. An Antichrist will come as the white knight carrying the bow, and the world will hail him as the one who comes in his own name and offer absolute power. But as you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. So, riding on the coattails of Antichrist will be war. James chapter 4, verse 1. James writes, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source of your pleasures? that wage war in your members. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Again, a, a quick comment about war. It's always disguised 
in terms of heroism and patriotism, but the truth of the matter is this, and anyone who has ever fought in war understands this, war is hell. War is hell. And I guarantee you, go have a conversation with any one of our men or women who come out of the naval base here and ask them, do you like war? No. There's nothing beautiful about war, nothing fun about it. It's horrible, it's bloody, it's awful. Those of men and women who are serving in Iraq right now, they're not there because it's Disneyland. They're there because they love their country and they fight for freedom, but it's ugly and it's brutal. And ask any one of them in Iraq, would you like to come home or stay there? And the answer would be, oh, can I come home now? <laughs> That'd be great. But those who do serve their game, they serve their country. But war is hell. And war is a direct result of, and has always resulted of, or results in, sin. Antichrist is going to come as this one who would be a friend to the world. Politician of great skill, but his sidekick, his tonto, if you will, will be war. And James ties it all back to this internal working of sin. You lust, and you do not have. You are envious, and you cannot obtain. And so you play your political games and you enter into war. By the way, I love this about Jesus. He refused to play politics. He was not a politician. Some would say, well, that's probably what killed him. No, his love for you and his love for me is what killed him. But when it came to politics, listen to this. When challenged with the issue of taxes paid to Rome, what did Jesus say? Give Caesar what's his. <laughs> he wants it. He's got his face on the coin. Give it to him. Who cares? It's his. Let him have it. And you give God what belongs to God. And when threatened by power... Jesus looked at his own disciple Peter and said, Peter, put away your sword. Put away your sword. Christians are not called to play politics. As James wrote, James 4, verse 4, Friendship with the world, which is another name for politics, friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Antichrist rides out, the rider on the white horse. War follows the rider on the red horse. And number three comes a rider on a black horse. Verse five. Then he broke the third seal, and I heard the third living creature saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius. Three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. These two verses are confusing. You read these and say, what? What's this about? What, what? So what is really this rider on the black horse? Now, if you've got a Bible that has little headings or titles on it, it says famine. So I'll tell you right now, it's famine. Okay? But when the scriptures were written, John didn't write the subtitles. He just wrote the text. And the text that we have is a little bit confusing, but let's put it into perspective. The voice says a quart of wheat for a denarius. What's a denarius? A denarius in the day was the equivalent of a day's wage. What a person working an eight-hour shift would make in a day would be a denarius. Let me give you this in Washington terminology. Minimum wage, I called Penelope and checked this out just the other day. Minimum wage is $7.63 in the state of Washington an hour. $7.63 an hour for eight hours would be $61.04. That's a day's wage. What this is saying is you could buy yourself a loaf of wheat bread for 60 bucks. What does that speak of? Famine. When a loaf of bread costs $60, that's famine. It's a time that follows war. Antichrist, this promiser of peace, rides out. War follows. And what follows next? Famine. And the world is in a terrible situation. 
the black horse's famine. Lamentations chapter 4 verse 8 says their appearance is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones. It is withered. It has become like wood. Better are those slain with the sword than those slain with hunger. For they pine away, being stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. And gang famine rides hard after the hoofprints of war. But something else is indicated here. Someone's controlling the food source. In other words, rationing is going on. We'll see more of this later in the book of Revelation. Chapter 13, verse 16 tells us, speaking of Antichrist, that he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand, or on their forehead. He provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. And we couldn't even have imagined this prior to 9-11. The whole idea of someone giving a mark, or in our day, literally like a little computer chip that could be embedded in your skin. Before 9-11, people were afraid of that type of thing, and companies like Applied Digital Technologies, they didn't have much of a business, though they had quite a product. But no one would buy it. After 9-11, people began to say, you know what, I want to be able to find my loved ones. But what if I have a child who's kidnapped? Boy, if I had a little embedded digital chip in their hand and they were kidnapped, we could find them right away. What a great means of security. Listen to this. Verachipcorp.com. You can look it up on your free time. says the following. The, the web page opens up to a beautiful technological looking screen and says, Welcome to Verichip. The world's premier radio frequency identification, RFID. The Radio Frequency Identification Company for People. Verichip is a subsidiary of Applied Digital and today serves the healthcare, the industrial, the security, and the government markets with a range of market-leading identification, location, and protection solutions. From the first and only patented, FDA-cleared, human-implantable RFID microchip to the only patented active RFID tag with skin-sensing capabilities, the Verichip leads the way in state-of-the-art RFID technologies. It's not a credit card. It's not an ATM machine. It is a chip that goes literally in the hand or anywhere else, and it can be instantaneously read. Great security. Great technology. People used to read about it in chapter 13, this mark of the beast. It's like, well, how will that work? You have to have a mark to buy or sell. Imagine yourself walking into the grocery store with your little bear chip in your right hand and it goes right under the scanner. And you pay for your food. Now, is that the way it's going to be? Is that what Antichrist is going to do to control the food markets? Sure, why not? <laughs> I don't know for sure. I'm not going to be here. But there's a good a good possibility that that's exactly what we're talking about. A chip that will contain either the name or the number of the beast. Now, we'll get there further in chapter 13. But notice, while the famine is taking place, while the famine is going on, and a loaf of wheat bread costs 60 bucks, look at what's protected. Do not damage the oil and the wine. What's up with that? Why not damage the oil and the wine? Gang, oil and wine in the Bible are symbols of luxury and wealth. Oil, talking about looking beautiful. Oil products, beauty products, oil of Olay, for example. 
The oil speaks of beauty. And so those who are the beautiful people, who are the wealthy people, are going to want to continue to look beautiful. And so at this time what you're going to see is famine for the masses, but the wealthy will get wealthier. And the oil will be available there. The wine, what's the wine about? It's about feeling good. It's about being at ease. Hey, just relax. Take it easy. Both the oil and the wine game, they're about fooling ourselves, even today. The oil of all the beauty products, how hard we work to make ourselves look good and how hard it gets every morning. I mean, it gets, doesn't it get harder and harder every day to get the thing to work? You know? Until you get to, to this place where I am where you just start wearing hats and not worrying about it. Put that on and we're good to go. The oil. The wine. It's about feeling good. Why, why would someone sit down and have a glass of wine? I'm not even talking about alcoholism or drunkenness or anything else. Why does someone have a glass of wine? Help me relax. Put me at ease. Oh, I sit on the couch with my glass of wine and I'm good to go for the evening. I can just hang out. Relax. And dang, it's while the people are saying, peace, safety, everything's good, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. Jesus will come like a thief in the night. And they will be caught by surprise. These are about fooling ourselves. Gang, even during the tribulation, as things begin to ramp up, people will chase after a false sense of pleasure, but it won't last. Even oil and wine cannot mask the fourth rider, rider number four, the rider on the ashen horse. Verse 7. When the Lamb broke forth the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, and, and I looked. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him. Authority, listen to this, authority was given to them, watch this, authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence by the wild beasts of the earth. One fourth of the earth will die in this time. One fourth, one out of four people. Count it up here tonight. If we were here during the tribulation, one fourth of our gathering tonight dead at this point in the tribulation period. Now this word ashen, you might want to jot this down. It's the Greek word chloros. Chloros. It's where we get our word for chlorine, which literally means bleach, like Clorox bleach. Or chlorophyll. Chlorophyll, which is that, which is that chemical, that, uh, that coloration in leaves. Chlorophyll, chlorine, what does it speak of? The word is translated ashen. It's probably not the best word. It's chloros. It's a sickly, pale green color. Dang, it's the color of death. Have you ever been in a situation where you've seen someone who has recently passed away and how the skin turns that gross, sickly green? I saw this. My grandfather passed away in the hospital. Of asbestosis, he got to where he couldn't breathe, and then he was on a breathing machine, and finally he died. And they took him off the machine, and we were in the you know the waiting room. The family was all there. I was there with my father, my mother, my brother, and uh, you know it was a difficult day. But we all wanted to go in and see him one last time and pray around his bed. And we went in there, and I was not ready for what I saw. Because there was the body of my grandfather who the day before I had been talking to, and as he was laid out on the hospital bed, the color of his face was chloros. It was that sickly, pale green color. That's what this horse, this rider on this horse looks like. This rider on this horse is death. This horse has always followed war, has always followed famine, and the two together will result in the death of a quarter of the world's population. Look at verse 8, the last part of it tells us authority was given to them for over a fourth of the earth. But watch this, to kill with famine and with the sword, with the sword and with famine 
And with pestilence, with pestilence, pestilence, that's interesting, that speaks more of, of chemical disease, it speaks of biological disease, possibly biological warfare that will be happening during this war. People dying of pestilence. By the way, Yasser Arafat, do you know what he died of? He died of AIDS. The world doesn't really know that. It was let slip in France, but that's what killed Yasser Arafat. Gang Yasser Arafat was a pedophile of the worst kind. The wife, the so-called wife that he had that was shipped off to France and right now has a big problem with the Palestinian Authority because she's got all the money and she won't release it and they think it's theirs and all that's going on. That, the whole thing was a farce. It was a setup. How do you know this, Rick? I was in Israel. I talked to people about it. That's all I'm going to tell you right now. Interesting. Pestilence. Pestilence kills and is part of this death that happens. War, this famine, this pestilence. By the way, when the Black Plague hit Europe, Back in 1345, one out of four people in Europe died in the Black Plague. A quarter of Europe was killed. And in the tribulation, this ashen plague of death will be worldwide. Beasts, by the way, are part of this death. Sword and famine and pestilence. It also says, by the wild beasts of the earth. The word there for beast is therion. Therion which is frightening beasts of any size. It doesn't necessarily mean like lions and tigers and bears, oh my. It could be very, very tiny beasts, frightening beasts. Remember, remember, the sealed judgments that we're looking at are the result of the consequence of sin. I mentioned Yasser Arafat dying of AIDS because that is the consequence of a sin choice that he made. AIDS, gang, is a frightening beast. A very, very tiny, microscopic, biological beast. A therion in the Greek. As we said, biological warfare may be the case. Remember the anthrax scares of just two or three years ago in Washington, D.C.? Viruses, AIDS, herpes, Ebola, tiny, frightening little beasts. So war rides out, famine rides out, followed by death. And these are the writers that accompany Antichrist. And this is what will happen as the world comes face to face with these deputies of disaster facing the reckoning of its own free will, the reckoning of sin. It's so bad, by the way, that God, who is rich in his mercy, shortens this reckoning period. He cuts it short. Matthew 24, verse 22 says, Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. The elect, by the way, Jesus is talking about Israel. For the sake of Israel, those days are cut short. Now quickly, watch the human response to these first four writers, these four deadly writers. Their reaction may surprise you. Verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. We're talking about martyrs. Martyrs who were underneath the throne, underneath and around the throne of God. And they cried out, verse 10, with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each one of them a white robe, which Jesus promised to give in Revelation 2 and 3. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until, until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. And right here we understand that there are people in the tribulation who will find salvation in Jesus Christ. How do you know this? 
the tribulation has begun and in this period the Lord says to these martyrs in heaven he says you got to wait for your brethren who are going to be killed just like you were this is during the tribulation so we know that there will be brethren of martyrs in heaven Christians people who come to Christ in the tribulation period but again if someone comes to Christ during the tribulation they will be killed for Christ during the tribulation John Corson puts it this way he says choose Christ now don't lose your head use your head if you wait for the tribulation you may it's possible you may at that time find Jesus although death of a fourth of the, of the world's population in these first three and a half years you could die before you choose Christ or there's a, a deluding influence that will be on the earth at the time the Holy Spirit pulled out Satan's influence will be incredible it will be hard to believe if you can't believe in Jesus now it's going to be multiple times harder to believe in him during the tribulation but people will people will and yet they will be martyred for it what do the people do following these four writers Antichrist, war, famine, death what do people do how do they respond on planet earth at this time they begin killing believers they begin blaming believers again make no mistake about it during this three and a half year period following the rapture and the subsequent rise of Antichrist there will be many people who realize all that you told them was true Many people will come to Christ. In fact, the indication is the harvest of souls during the tribulation will be larger than at any other period during church history. It's one way to let us know that for all our evangelical campaigns, God can still do it better. But there will be massive numbers of people who will come to Christ at this time. Too late for the rapture, but not too late for salvation. And these are the tribulation saints. In verse 11, there was given to each of them a white robe until the number of their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also and this is what happens the world starts to fall apart war and famine and death and as it all falls apart people are freaked out think about just the fallout from the rapture alone how freaky that will be here in the world all these people taken and the world just not knowing what to do with itself and after all of this people begin to go after believers why would they do that? I mentioned a little, a little while ago the Black Plague in Europe, 1345 to 1400. During that time, a fourth of all people died. What I didn't tell you was who was blamed for the Black Plague. You know who it was? It was the Jews. It was the Jews' fault. Why is that? Because while people in Europe were dying of the Black Plague, the only people not dying of the Black Plague, for the most part, were Jews. Why not? They were living by the Levitical law. I can't get it out. They were eating kosher. They were eating right kinds of food. They were following God's prescription for healthy living. And so they were being protected. By the way, it wasn't just that they were following the law. I also believe they were being spared by God. God always has kept a remnant of the Jewish people. There has always been a group of Israelites who have been saved to carry on all the way for the fulfillment of God's promise. Interesting, we were in Jerusalem, and I'll tell you this real quickly, we were at, they, they still keep the kosher laws, it's very fascinating the way it works out. There's a, a law we talk about in Leviticus that says you shall not boil a young kid or a young lamb in its mother's milk. 
That's not allowed. And so, taken to the kosher extreme, a Jewish person will not drink milk and eat meat at the same time because you might boil the meat and the milk in your stomach at the same time. And, oh, what if there's some lamb in there? Oh, you violated the law. They won't do it. You cannot get a glass of milk with a meat with, with meat at dinner time. It's not available. Well, Cheryl and I are in Jerusalem, and we're in these two little food stands. One was a falafel place, and you're right, Jane. The falafel is awesome. So we're at the falafel place, and next door was a bagel place. Well, Cheryl wanted a bagel. She went into the bagel place. I went into the falafel place. Now, I ordered falafel the day before, but on this particular day, I ordered what's called shwerma, which is a lamb and turkey thing that's stuffed in a pita, and it's just so good. Then I come out with my shwerma and my coke, and I sit down at this little table right in front of the falafel shwerma place. Cheryl came out with her bagel and cream cheese and sat down beside me, and the owner of the falafel place came running out of there going, No, 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 you can't sit there. You sit over on that side. And Cheryl said, well, this is my husband. I can't sit with my husband. And he said, all right, put a napkin and don't let any of that cheese get on my table. Don't mix the cheese and the meat. A few minutes later, forgetting about all of it, I offered Cheryl some of my meat shawarma. And she said, are you kidding? What are you thinking? And I'm like, oh, yeah. Sorry. Oops. People People were saying during the Black Plague, they were saying, why aren't the Jews dying like us? It must be them. It must be their fault. And so they began to go after the Jews. And gang, listen to this. Sin always, always rears up against faith. Always. Sin rears up against faith. When people in sin look at people in faith, the reaction tends to be, I want nothing to do with you. Sin rears an ugly head. Gang, the more you stand up for Jesus... The more you express your faith, the more sin around you will be repulsed and you will be reviled for it. And I'm just giving that by way of warning because as we talk about things here in this fellowship, isn't the bottom line that we get out and share the name of Jesus? Just know that while you're sharing, sin's not going to like it. And sin will rear up. And you will, one way or another, be reviled for it. I guarantee it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 Jesus says that, hey, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. By the way, he says because of me. So don't think yourself a martyr when you go out there and someone says something negative against you because you've been being stupid. Okay? If it's because of Jesus, then you're to be blessed. Rejoice and be glad, he said, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So what am I supposed to do when my faith draws fire? How am I supposed to relax? Just sit there and sing happy songs? Hey, I'm being blessed. Isn't this great? The reality, gang, is when persecution comes, it doesn't feel good for any of us. When it happens to me, as it did recently, my reaction is, Man, why do I have to deal with this? not fair. Lord, I'm just trying to do what you want me to do, and I'm getting burned for it. I don't like this. Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad. How am I supposed to do that, Lord? Really rejoice and be glad in bad stuff happening to me just because I'm proclaiming your word? How am I supposed to do that? Listen to what Peter said Jesus did. 1 Peter 2.23, he says, While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So if you're being burned for whatever reason and it's related to your faith, if you're being persecuted for Jesus' sake, The way to deal with it is to say, God, I can't deal with this. I'm going to entrust it to you. You judge. You take care of it. 
and let me just live for you. It's one thing to proudly say I'm suffering for Jesus. It's another thing to actually go through it. But the best thing to do as we go through it is to entrust ourselves to God. And it's the lesson I'm still trying to learn. Well, the next seal that Jesus opens, the next seal broken by the Lamb is worldwide terror. Watch this. Hang with me. We've just got a few more verses. I looked and he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. I've got to say this real quick. The earthquake... There are several earthquakes that will happen throughout the tribulation. Those earthquakes are going to cause dramatic topographical changes throughout all of Israel and especially in Jerusalem. Want to hear something cool? It was discovered. When you look at the picture of the Temple Mount, I was just sharing this with Sharon this afternoon. When you look at the Temple Mount, you can see the Eastern Gate. But that's not the original Eastern Gate. The one that you see was actually built, I believe, by Saladin, and it was built closed. It was never built with the intention of opening it. It's above, it's above the original eastern gate that is underground. You see, as the centuries went by, and there were over 30 battles for Jerusalem, each time Jerusalem was conquered and wiped out, they'd just cover over the city with dirt and build more. And then they covered over with dirt, and the next time it was conquered, and they'd build on top of that. And they would build on top and on top and on top, which is why there's such a rich heritage archaeologically in Jerusalem. But there was an archaeologist who was digging out by this, this false eastern gate, and this was years and years ago, and as he dug, he broke through the earth and fell into a pit. And when he looked up inside that pit, there was the eastern gate. You see, the one that's visible today is directly on top of the one below. What does that mean? Let me put it in context. Psalm 24, verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, and the king will come in. As these earthquakes happen, it's going to reshape the land in Jerusalem for prophecy to take place. And I truly believe that with these earthquakes, the true eastern gate is going to bust its way up. It will be, the, the ancient gates will be lifted up and the king will go in. It's cool stuff. I told you, there's just so much and it will just keep coming. But where are we? So the great earthquake and the sun made black as sackcloth made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. Stop right there for just a second. Recognize, by the way, these things happening in the sixth seal, all this terror. This is not man-made stuff. These are not things caused by, these are not now the consequences of man's sin. This is wrath that is beginning to be poured out. And who is the one breaking the seals? It is the Lamb. This is under the control of Jesus, and he is bringing about tribulation. He is pouring out Wrath. Some people may think this describes, by the way, the fallout of a nuclear winter. Possible. Following all of these, you know, the war and the famine and the death. Following the war, if there is nuclear weapons used in this war, then there would be a nuclear winter following it. And this would describe it. The sun becoming black as sackcloth and the moon like blood. Now, it wouldn't explain the stars of the sky falling to the earth. It wouldn't explain the way that they fall like a fig tree cast unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. It wouldn't explain really the earthquake unless it was, you know, the nuclear blast earlier. But it's interesting that this, this gang, at this time, God begins personally intervening. And I believe that's very clear from the text. God is now stepping in. And this is not the second half of the tribulation. That's important to remember. This is during the first half of the tribulation. And God is stepping in. 
and the Lamb is pouring out wrath at this time during this first half of the tribulation. The second half, by the way, Jesus defined it differently. Let me read this to you. Matthew 24, verse 9, he says, They will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. First half of the tribulation. Verse 21 of Matthew chapter 24, he says, Then there will be a great tribulation, such as not has occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So how long will the great tribulation be? Daniel, you might want to jot down these verses. Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. Daniel chapter 12, verse 7. And Revelation chapter 12, verse 6 are where we get the time frame of the tribulation period. Also Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. That tells us it's a seven-year time frame. But Daniel 7.25 and 12.7 both speak in this language. It refers to a time, times, and half a time. Apply that to the standard of a year. A year, years, and half a year, three and a half years. That's what a time, times, and half a time is. How do we know that specifically? Revelation 12, verse 6 says the same thing, but then gives it in days. 1,260 days. Divide 1,260 by the Jewish calendar year of 360 days, and you get three and a half years. How long will the Great Tribulation be? Three and a half years. How long will the first half of the Tribulation be? Three and a half years. Three and a half plus three and a half, seven years. Okay? So that's how we get that numbering, and that's why when we talk about the tribulation, it's a seven-year period. The Bible is very clear in its uh, multiplication, in its addition, and its uh, explanation of these numbers. So the first half of the tribulation happens, it's three and a half years. The last three and a half are the great tribulation. And at the end, interestingly, but still in the first half, God's righteous anger is kindled. The Lamb now is stepping in. The Lamb now is pouring out His wrath onto the earth. And what is it that causes God to do it? Why all of a sudden now is Jesus stepping in? Why not wait till the Great Tribulation, the last three and a half? Why now? Because He hears the martyrs cry. And He is cutting short those days. For if He did not cut short those days, the elect wouldn't even have made it. So Jesus begins to step in. He begins to act. He hears the martyrs cry, and as always, when God hears his people cry, he responds. They were 400 years in Egypt. And how did God, why did God respond? The cry of his people came up to him. And so he sent a deliverer. And so he hears the cry. Verse 14 goes on and tells us the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up. Interesting. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places, and I don't care how bad the wind blows on Whidbey Island right now, we have no idea what's coming. And you may think that Whidbey's going to be blown off the map. It will. No mountain, no island anywhere is going to remain. They will all, they will all be moved out of their places. This will be a dramatic experience, not just in Israel, but across the whole of the world. Interesting that... Um, the wording here says that the sky is being rolled up like a scroll. Like a scroll. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 22 says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. 
And critics of the scripture used to call this fanciful poetry. Oh, that can't be the way things are. The circle of the earth and and the stretching out of the heavens. Well, it's interesting. Sir James Hopwood Jeans, an early 20th century astrophysicist, said the following. He stated that the universe is indeed being stretched. It's expanding. Kind of like a scroll being rolled out. Einstein's theory of relativity indicates that the universe as we know it has to be curved. Like a scroll being rolled up. You know, if you've ever scrolled paper and you've tried to roll it out and you let it go, it pops back and it has that curve to it. So the universe is curved and now we see the Bible telling us it's going to be rolled up like a scroll. Sir Hopwood, James, Einstein, among others, saw this coming. By the way, another little tidbit. Back when Hebrew University was founded in Jerusalem and they were drawing scholars from all over the world to be Hebrew teachers in Hebrew University, there was a man who went over there to get a job, but they said all the positions were full, and so he was turned away. His name was Albert Einstein. (laughs) Boy, they have kicked themselves ever since. Well, quantum physics. Quantum physics actually used the word scroll to describe the universe. Since the universe is scroll-like, then it shouldn't be too hard for God to roll it up when the time comes. And this will begin as we approach the midpoint of the tribulation. Let's finish. Verse 15. Watch this. Then the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne. And watch this. Don't miss this. And from the wrath of the Lamb. You might even want to underline that in your Bibles. Hide us, they say to the mountains. Fall on us, they say to the rocks. Hide us from who? From the wrath of the Lamb. Let me be very clear about this. People alive at the time will apparently know beyond the shadow of a doubt something that Christians today are continuing to debate. What's that? That is whether or not the church will be around in the first half of the tribulation. Right now the debate goes on. It's called the pre-wrath or the mid-tribulation rapture approach. And there are a lot of people, and it's interesting, it's very popular in the Northwest. A lot of people who teach that the church is going to be raptured, but we're going to have to go through the first half of the tribulation and then we'll be taken up. Because the first half of tribulation really isn't the wrath of God being poured out. Interesting, the people alive at the time know who's pouring out the wrath. It's Jesus. This wrath is coming from Jesus. It is called the wrath of the Lamb. And so for that midpoint of the tribulation, the pre-wrath people who, who would talk about this, there are a lot of reasons. We'll get to some of this later on having to do with the trumpet judgments. But there are reasons that they give that they think that, no, we're going to go through the first half and then we'll be caught up for the last three and a half years. Okay, the people alive in this day apparently understand the first three and a half years are pretty clear. They know exactly who this wrath belongs to. It belongs to the Lamb. Now, if that's the case, and don't miss this, if that is the case, that this first half of the tribulation, you can attribute at least some part of it to the wrath of the Lamb, then apply this verse, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation, for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, if the rise of Antichrist, followed by war, famine, the death of the fourth of the earth, martyrdom and terror are unleashed by the Lamb, It's very clear the Lamb is the one breaking the seals. He's the one who is unleashing, allowing, bringing this on the earth. If these things are unleashed by Jesus, 
then the first half of the tribulation is also not for the church. It's not for us. If this is the wrath of the Lamb, as the Bible tells us it is, because God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, and it sets up a very interesting paradox related to the Lamb. What's that? This is the truth, gang. The wounds of the Lamb, the wounds of the Lamb bring about my salvation, but the wrath of the Lamb opens up the floodgates of tribulation. The wounds of the Lamb will save you if you will call out to the Lamb today. But the wrath of the Lamb will happen during that first half of the tribulation for those who reject Jesus. But for those who claim Jesus, who call on Jesus, who accept Him and live by the name of Christ, that wrath is not for you. So stop you know, hoarding stuff in your storage places and you know, storing up extra water and food and saying, we're going to go through it. We're going to make it through that first three and a half years. It's not for you. It is not for you. We have not been destined for wrath. J. Vernon McGee said this way. He said, God did not choose the Lamb because it possessed characteristics of Christ. God created the Lamb to represent Christ. Because Christ was around as long as God was. He had always been there. And so at the creation of this little the picture of a lamb, God created the lamb as a representation to look like, to be used as a picture of Jesus. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 tells us that he was known before the foundation of the world. Before any lamb was created, God created that symbol of peace and even of sacrifice. But now, surprisingly, this symbol speaks of wrath. When you see those sheep and the lambs in the hills of Judea, you can't even imagine how one of those could have anything to do with wrath. But this lamb does. It is the wrath of the lamb being poured out. Psalm 2 verse 10 says, Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. By the way, that's the word for worship. Kiss the sun. True worship is approaching and kissing the Son in reverence. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish from the way. When His wrath is kindled, but a little. Let me read that again. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish from the way. When His wrath is kindled, but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. But do these kings and great men and commanders of the earth turn and serve the Lord with fear? Do they repent with trembling or rejoice? Do they kiss the sun? No. Like Adam and Eve, before them they hide. They hide. Worse than that, not only do they hide, but they call on the rocks to fall on them instead of falling on the rock who can save them. They say here, rocks fall on us. And Jesus said in Matthew 21.44, He who falls on this stone, the cornerstone, will be broken. You come to the Lord, you're going to be broken. You're going to face your sin. You're going to understand who He is and the sacrifice. And it will break you. However, on whomever this stone falls, it will scatter him like dust. That's the choice. We can fall on the rock and be broken and find salvation. Or the rock can fall on us. Like these men in the tribulation period, they're saying, Rocks fall on us. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. And the chapter closes with a final question. The great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Jude 24 gives us an answer for that. He is able to keep you from stumbling, 
and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. Only the Lamb, only the Lamb can make a person able to stand at the time of tribulation. Only the Lamb, the Lamb can give us right now in our lives the strength to stand regardless of what happens in our lives. And so Jesus says in Luke 12:32, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Your Father has chosen to give you the kingdom. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the kingdom. What an overwhelming thought, Lord. The kingdom. You give us the kingdom. We're people of sin. We're people who are broken and fallen and don't deserve what you offer us. And then, Father, in your incredible grace and mercy, you just pour out gift upon gift. You give us salvation by the name of the Lamb, by Jesus Christ. You give us this hope of eternal glory. You promise us the glorification of our bodies. And on top of all of it, as if that wasn't enough, Father, you're going to make us able to stand as you give us a kingdom. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Give us the strength to stand in Jesus' name. Amen.